you're listening to Hot Leaf Juice, the Tea Community Podcast. Welcome back, listeners. We have another great episode of Hot Leaf Juice for you this week. So this week, I spoke with Peter Christie of Far Leaves Tea House uh, up in Berkeley, California. As some of you know, I live in Southern California, but the other week I made the drive up to the Bay Area to visit a friend and see a great plant-based heavy metal band, Botanist. If you like Hammer Dulcimer, check them out. That show was on Tuesday, so I had some free time during the day, and I went around the sort of Oakland-Berkeley side of the bay trying to visit as many tea places as I could, and uh, easily the best shop I visited was Far Leaves. There were other great tea places in the area as well, and they're all worth visiting, but Far Leaves uh, really struck a chord with me. It felt well thought out and really cared for. It had a beautiful interior, beautiful furniture. I got to read a great book on a Yale exhibit about Japanese tea uh, artifacts. Uh, Each table had an outlet to plug an electric kettle in. If you wanted to take your shoes off and have tea on on a tatami section on a raised platform, that was an option as well. And of course, the tea was excellent. Uh, The handful of other customers who came in that day, uh, they sat down with their books and their papers and they didn't seem stressed or rushed and after a while they they checked in on each other and uh, what each other was doing like they had been seeing each other at the tea house for years. It was just a great vibe. Uh, I had a great conversation with the clerk on duty and Peter's wife, Donna, stopped by to check in on me and she was just a delight to talk tea with. I don't mean to gush, but the closer I looked... And the longer I stayed, the more I just really liked the place. It seemed like they were fully capable of satisfying my very specific tea tastes and expectations while also not sending any intimidating vibes to a more casual tea drinker. You know, as time goes on, I'm I'm more and more convinced of the importance of physical tea spaces and about how, if they're designed well, they can be this really great node for transmitting tea knowledge to new tea drinkers and connecting uh, tea drinkers with each other. That's the context for this conversation with Peter Christie. I really hope you like it. And if you're in the Bay Area and you like tea, don't skip Far Leaves. It's well worth the trip. This show now has a sponsor. Uh, I've been a friend and customer of Mad Monk Tea for almost three years now. The owner, Taylor, has been on an early episode of the show, and I've just been amazed at the great tea and friendship that uh, he's shown me over the years. Uh, This year, I've just had a bigger and bigger role in uh, helping my local tea shop grow and operate. So to show my appreciation to Mad Monk, you can now get uh, 20% off any orders from madmonktea.com with the discount code HOTLEAFJUICE. That's just the name of the show. No caps, no spaces, Hot Leaf Juice. All the tea on there is really exceptional. Uh, I've had all their tea, and it's really, really good. Uh, Taylor has a great palate for selecting tea. Uh, I'm an oolong uh, enthusiast myself, so uh, I've been loving the Pear Mountain, the Lishan that we've uh, had in stock. It's probably one of the most memorable 27 teas that I've had so far, and I'm looking forward to continuing to drink it in a 20 so that again that offer for 20% off is just the name of the show hot leaf juice and thanks again as always to equity slate for letting us use this really great track so if you like this track and you want to buy it maybe play it next time you're having a tea session with some friends uh, i'll put a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that now that the housekeeping's out of the way let's get on with the show So where are you originally from? Are you a are you a Bay Area uh, native uh, or are I grew you a transplant? Up in Denver, Colorado. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, and then uh, I went east for college, and then I went far east after college to Taiwan and spent some time in Asia, and then I uh, ended up on the West Coast in Berkeley and uh, kind of stuck here. 
good place to get you, stuck. You did the whole. You you traveled the world. You did a whole circle, right? Yeah. I, I <laughs> missed some continents, but yeah, I've uh, I've seen a little bit. Have you had any tea today? Uh, absolutely. I I drink every day uh, Taiwanese oolongs, and I think today was Dongding. Uh, I like mm. uh, any any of the high mountain green oolongs from Taiwan is pretty much what I drink every day. And then usually some other things as well, sampling something or tasting uh, whatever we've got going in the shop. So you went east. So you went to co- college uh, on the East Coast. Where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Brown University in Providence. Oh, okay. I've been to Providence. Yeah. Providence it's a nice town. A nice town. It's a lot nicer now than it was back in the day when I went to school there. They've done a lot of... Uh, Nice renovations in town. So did you study anything at Brown that pushed you towards uh, moving, you know, traveling far to the far, far east? Yeah, Is, was I there did. Anything you, uh, you know, uh, I, I started off in engineering and economics, and then I took a year off. You know, I, so I was studying those things uh, for coursework because it seemed practical. But I was reading uh, uh, Taoist and Zen books since high school. Uh, out of just interest. Uh, and then I took a year off from college and traveled all over Asia. Um, spent a year just going from Hong Kong to China, Japan, Southeast Asia, India, and came back and changed my major to Asian studies and learned how to read and write and speak Chinese with a little bit of a success. Uh, and continued basically studying Asian studies, uh, Taoist philosophy it was really the, the, the thing that I was most interested in. And then you went to Taiwan. Where in Taiwan did you did you did you live? Uh, so moved or to visit. Taipei. Uh, initially I was going mm-hmm. to uh, in the south of Taiwan there's a, a monastery and I was gonna go and uh, become a Buddhist. Went down there and spent a few days down there and realized that it wasn't really the right mix for me wasn't a good match and so went back to taipei and studied at a zen center there and taught english with a bunch of the other expats i noticed in your menu at the far leaves there was a lot of uses this is a very sort of popular phrase now and i I really like it as well the sort of the, the the language of mindfulness which definitely is something that's sort of a it's a secularized derivation from uh a lot of zen uh, a lot of Zen thinking is that is that where a lot of the that comes from for for your approach to far leaves and your approach to tea did that have a big influence on you? Absolutely, the uh, the connection between meditation and uh, the tea is very strong. Basically, I see that tea is sort of a meditative art that's really easy for beginners, right? So far leaves is about having tea. It's about the process of having tea. Essentially, the the benefits of mindfulness are, uh, you know, or being trained to be mindful allows you, uh, in the real world, to not get triggered by things. So when things make you angry or stressed out, uh, the human body and mind just sort of naturally responds with fight or flight reflexes, which are not always uh, the best thing to do in the modern world, and so. Mindfulness training is a way of helping us to step outside of that fight or flight reflex so that we don't punch somebody when they make us angry, but we uh, listen to them and try to have empathy with them. 
And so there's all kinds of practices that you can do uh, that, that help to train you so that when these moments come up, uh, you're able to deal. And so that's what sitting meditation is, is a good example. And sitting meditation I find very difficult. It's hard to sit and do nothing for a long time. It's, you know, counting your breath is difficult. So moving meditations, I, I think I really like. Things like yoga and tai chi, um, drumming, these kind of, these kind of practices are also sort of meditative arts where, uh, you can start to get control, um, and get in touch with your mind-body connection. And so people do those, but they, they sort of need to intentionally go into it and want to do it and make an effort. And so it sort of limits who gets the benefits of those things. And tea, I've found, is kind of uh, an easy entryway drug to mindfulness practice. Because just having tea, uh, to, to make tea, you go through a process where you need to wait and be patient. Starting from putting the water on and waiting for the water to boil gives an opportunity to to be silent and to wait. And, you know, it takes like three to five minutes to have water come from cold to a full boil. It's a short period of time. It's hard to wait that long um, in reality and, and not do but So it's easy meditative practice that um, one can go through. And listening to the kettle boil is something that I really like to do where uh, you don't have a thermometer in the kettle, but you listen as the metal starts to expand and the water starts to simmer and the bubbles start to go up. You can hear the water temperature. Um, and so using those senses really, uh, it, it's, it's an easy mindful practice. And then making the tea, you know, you need to not spill and you need to, you know, you can uh, go through all of your senses. Because a lot of mindful practices really are about getting in touch with your body because we lose touch with our body and, and, and that's when, you know, we just start going on autopilot. But if we pay attention, then we have more control. And so, so tea to me is, is, is an easy way for people to start having a mindful practice ritual, even though they may not be somebody who wants to go and meditate. So, so that's, that's kind of what, you know, really inspired me to, to, to make uh, far leaves uh, as a as a space where people could uh, could you know practice that kind of slow pace slower pace of life. The way you describe you know it, the way you were describing all that it reminds me a lot of um, the way that people write about Shano use the Japanese style tea specifically where you're listening to the the kettle and you're sort of allowing tea to you're letting the tea affect you essentially right from from the design of the tea house all the way to actually serving. It seems a little bit different from some of the other approaches you can have where maybe on the other side of the spectrum you have bonku cha, which, which is you are controlling the tea to create a high-quality piece of culinary art that may or may not have the same kind of emphasis on uh, on on changing the mental state of the tea person, uh, his or herself. Have you re have you found that you, you've been influenced by, I think that there was a quote in one of your, in your menu by uh, Okakura, Okazo Okakura from the Book of Tea about teaism. When did you get exposed to that work of literature? That's one of the great, that's one of the most profound works of tea literature that I've ever Yeah, read. no, I, I think, I don't know if I saw it before college, but definitely during college I saw that. And, you know, it really does make obvious the connection between a tea practice and mindful living. And the language is just beautiful in that. And uh, hard to, you know, without that book, I don't know whether or not I would have 
made a tea shop as a way to expose people to mindful behavior. As to whether, you know, it's specifically like a Japanese thing that makes this connection versus, you know, what is gongfu tea? You know, it, it, I think there's some room for interpretation of what it is. Um, it's not an ancient tradition, really. Uh, especially compared to, uh, you know, the, the Japanese tea ceremony. Gongfu tea, as many people are practicing it now, kind of started up in Taiwan in the 80s, where, you know, Taiwan had, uh, China had been in, you know, many, many decades of chaotic existence and had finally sort of by the 70s and 80s, Taiwan had come out of that chaotic period and there was starting to be a middle class and there was, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to revisit cultural, uh, activities. And so they kind of looked back at, uh, I think it's the Ming dynasty style is when the, the Yixing pots started to get used. And so they used those pots and, and said, here's how we're doing it. You know, there, there's a lot of, at Far Leaves, we're pretty casual in, in our approach to tea. And we don't really think that there's a right way and a wrong way. And so a lot of uh, these other rituals are saying, you're not doing it right. You know, Tanoyu uh, is definitely, uh, you can make big mistakes. Uh, Gongfu tea in, in some circles is definitely people have a lot of attitude about how to do it. And, and that's all fantastic, uh, you know. There, there's different tea traditions everywhere, right? So we think of tea as really a, a means to express a culture. And so you have British tea. Uh, you know, English-style tea is very specific and has rules and etiquette and, and all of that. Uh, Russians drink tea in a particular way. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, there's a lot of social element in all of them, but in the Middle East, it's particularly uh, a, a way to, you know, in, in the marketplace, to engage with people is through tea. So we kind of embrace everything and are fairly casual about our tea. And so we kind of have a blend here. I make my tea, my daily tea. I have an Yixing pot. Uh, I, I have a, a, a boat that, that sits in for me to pour on. And I, it's not really gongfu tea because I pour it all into one big cup for myself. But the process to me of gongfu is is a practice where you are being intentional in your activities. And so, in a way, any kind of tea making is gong fu style, <laughs> rather than just, uh, do I have smelling cups? And, and you know, am I using a pitcher? All, all of those things are definitely a particular kind of, you know, Chinese gong fu style tea. But really, to me, uh, you know, and in Okakuro's book, it, you know, it really... Anything you do in life is sort of a celebration of the imperfect. So, I, I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> I had wanted to talk, just, just to hear your thoughts about so the differences between Shano Yu's approach, the Japanese Okakura kind of approach where tea is, where you are an instrument of, you know, making tea and other, other schools of tea where you're, where it seems to be more about making it right right like doing it in a way that is sort of making fine tea whereas the other way is making a fine person you're a man after my own heart peter i appreciate i appreciate you well, I, I love that distinction that. though that, that you made there you know where it's about is it the making the person or is it making the tea i think that's that's lovely uh, and i'm definitely more into making the person 
that said, we have people at Far Leaves who are definitely more into making the tea. My wife is excellent at making tea. Her tea is better than mine by a lot. Um, and I don't know why, but I guess it's because I'm okay with however it turns out. <laughs> and she has a little more focus on quality. Well, you could really see someone's personality, uh, in, in how, in whatever the tea equilibrium people set in. I, I know that in the five, five years that I've been sort of intentionally making tea and in, in contact with Western tea culture, I go, I've gone through cycles where I'm very fastidious about water temperature and water to leaf ratios and I have a calculator and it's very scientific and very, you know, very one side of the brain. And then depending on what's going on, how I'm changing or how the environment changes, you're like, ah, I'll just eyeball it. And part of that I think comes with confidence. I think a lot of new tea drinkers, especially with this, once they kind of see the tip, once they see just behind the curtain at the immense thousands of years of history and just many, many countries of, you know, worth of tradition for tea, it can be intimidating and you want to do it Uh, right. And then as you get comfortable with yourself, you're like, well, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm a eyeball. This is my guy I've been using for, for a year. I know how much this, this tea looks. I don't need to make sure it's four grams instead of 3.7. It'll be okay. And that confidence, I think, sort of shows where people's personality comes. And so it sounds like, you know, you, you, you said you don't use a pitcher, right? Well, why would you? You have, if you're making tea for yourself, <laughs> you're not serving right. it. Well, you know, and I think that going through that process and that stage of tea drinking, you know, for any, any practice or any art, there's, you know, you do your 10,000 hours to become the expert. And so measuring and knowing, you know, that the three grams of tea for three minutes at uh, 100 degrees C, you know, it's like that kind of, okay, here's the scientific way. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it enough times that, okay, now I'm bored with it and I understand how that works, you know. Over time, you you just learn these things, but I think it is important to to spend that time to refine your practice and to you know learn the skill and then forget all the rules. It's it's one you know we, it, I think that's a something that I would recommend, but it's not something that we want to enforce. You know, so at Far Leaves, we really don't say here's a bunch of strict rules that you need to learn because we would rather have people just start even if they're doing it wrong, because there isn't really wrong. You know, there's, there's better ways of doing it. And you can either, you know, follow some rules that other people have said, here's how you should do it, and then you can copy those rules and study and practice and get better and then learn to break them. Or you can just discover them on your own, um, you know, because everybody has a lifetime to, to learn how to make tea. You don't have to do it right the first time. The analogy I always come back to is like jazz, right? Like you have to have some musical theory background to really be great at just freestyling, Absolutely. right? In 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 a jazz setting, or as as, you, as it's like, and it, which again, music is music is art, and and just not just making tea is art, but like you know, your your the expression of uh, far leaves and its layout, I thought was really compelling when I walked in through the doors. I basically had a day to kill. My I was visiting my friend in Oakland. And we were going to go see a show later that evening. And I kind of, he had to sort of, it was a work day and I was visiting him. So he was like, I got to go. I'll see you later. And I ended up uh, visiting your your shop at, at 11 when it opened. 
And the first thing that I noticed that was really compelling was that, and this goes back with your, which you were mentioning earlier with your sort of above the board strategy. Uh, the, uh, every, all the tables have a, have a place where you can have an electric kettle. And I have, in all the tea places I've been to, I've never seen that. Not that I've been to lots of them. And certainly I've not been to many tea places in Asia. So I'm, I'm aware that there's a whole world out of my experience, but in the West anyway, compared to the other Western tea places, that's a new thing for me to see. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great, what a great, uh, way to handle that. And that, that, that immediately excited me because you are sort of throwing, putting the ball in, in the court of whoever it is that wants to be there. So when did, when did that, that specific, uh, element of your design of your, your tea house, when did that come yeah, about? That was, was that there yeah, from that 1998? So I, I'd love to say that that was my idea. Um, but essentially we kind of copied tea houses that had been coming up in Taipei, right? So in the 80s, as people were doing this, uh, uh, starting this Gong Fu tea practices with the, with the Yixing pots and, and the pitchers and all the cups and, you know, the, the, the scoops with the leaves displayed so that you make your own, you know, and the art of tea, all of that was, was going on. And so they were building tea houses in awesome places. You know, the, there's a, a tea shop that's still in Taipei called Wisteria that is kind of the, the place oh, yeah, very to famous. go. If, uh, it's, you know, I, we didn't exactly copy Wisteria, but we definitely have inherited a lot of their sensibilities. Uh, for example, I, I don't know if they probably have electric kettles now, but at that time they had gas burn. You know, you had a little alcohol burner. And that was the water kettle that every table had. Um, and so that process. Did that take like 10 minutes to boil? <laughs> it did. It, it did. So, you know, you were really in for the experience. But so we started with electric kettles and because really to me, it's about having tea and, and I'm more this way than some other folks at Far Leaves where, you know, it, it is also about the quality of the leaves. <laughs> but for me, the process of waiting for the water and pouring and waiting and smelling and tasting and sharing almost doesn't matter what leaves you're putting in the water. And so that's why you got to have a kettle at the table because otherwise you're just enjoying a beverage um, rather than having tea. So yeah, so we started right from day one with tea kettles on every table. What was it like on the on the first day? Like, you know, take me back to 1998. Like, what's it's it's day one. You're you're you are the, you're a brand new virgin tea shop owner. The door is open. What, what's the first day like? So you're you're in you're not your current location, but you're still in Berkeley. Yeah. So is there, is there a line out the door, or are you kind of like asking people no, to come in? So, <laughs> you know, we we knew that Berkeley was a good place for a tea shop. In in, in college, I had thought, you know, I would have, my dream job would be I want to open a revolutionary cafe. Um, and this was sort of before I knew about tea. And so I'd sort of thought it was like a bar where the founding fathers were plotting, you know, the tea party. Oh, like a salon. You know, yeah, like, yeah. That seemed like a really cool thing to open. And so that was kind of the seeds of this. And uh, I, you know, I had thought that there were a few places in in America that would support uh, a tea business, because um, they, they sort of were centers of uh, open-minded, and this is like Cambridge and Boulder and Berkeley. All, you know, these three college towns are all sort of very receptive to new ideas. And so ended up in Berkeley and was looking for space for a long time. 
And space is the hard part. It has to be just the right space, and you know the rent has to be reasonable enough because tea is cheap. Uh, but anyway, we you know we stopped by a real estate office and asked the woman inside if she knew of you know if she ever heard of anything. Let us know, and she said, "Oh, my building's going to be available." And so I called her every month for like a year and said, "Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet?" And so, you know, so now I'm a year into this thing before day one, um, just calling her and saying, are you ready? And so finally we moved in to a space that it had been a too small local grocery store. Because um, the College Avenue spot is a thousand feet uh, with a mezzanine upstairs and counting in that. So kind of a small for a grocery store, but perfect for a tea shop. Also being in a, one of the specially zoned neighborhoods of Berkeley, there were permitting requirements that were a little tricky. So we opened our shop before we were permitted to serve tea to customers. We knew that there was a quota and that there was an application process that we could go through and that we would, uh, you know, I guess we were gambling on that they would give us the, the permit that we needed. Uh, I was pretty sure that Berkeley would be receptive to the idea of a tea shop and that they would permit us, um, which they did uh, after about six months, which is, you know, was fast. <laughs> for what we were trying to do. Um, but So we opened, and we had everything you need to have a tea shop, but you couldn't sit down and have tea. Um, so we had confused customers. People would come in, and they would say, are you guys a furniture store? Um, they, they weren't <laughs> quite sure what we were, but we had plenty of tea, and we would, you know, giving lots of samples um, in the early days. You know, people would come in, and we would just do tastings all the time. Um, you know, so it was, it was, it was great. You know, we had people coming in and had that big counter and just giving tastings and meeting people and, uh, enjoying tea. And, uh, you know, so it was sort of a slow start, but, uh, tea is, is, is about slow. And so it was compatible with the mission. So what's the relationship been like with Berkeley as a, as a city and as a community? It sounds like you're very, you know, you're very positive on the, on the, presence of the university there, which is probably the most defining feature most people who don't live there anyway know about about that town, uh, which, you know, uh, now that it's been almost 20 years, it, what's the relationship with, like, the community been, and how has it maybe changed? Has it gotten, what, what's, yeah, what's it been like uh, for you? I mean, the university is definitely a, a huge, the university is definitely a, is a big factor in what makes Berkeley what it is. And when we were on College Avenue, we were quite close. And so we had lots of students at every level, from undergrad to graduate students to postdocs. And there were there was a dean of a law school, I know, that, uh, you know, we've had dissertations written in the tea shop. And there's writers that have written books in our tea shop. And um, so, you know, sort of the standardly expected cast of characters, right? So uh, in addition to all those ones that are like obvious tea shop uh, demographic, uh, we have regular people that, as well. Uh, the foodies is, is another group that uh, are, are attracted. So, you know, we, we developed friendships with chefs of a number of restaurants. And, you know, so that helped us to organically grow the... We do wholesale to rent to a number of restaurants. Just was they were customers first, and uh, you know coming into the tea shop, and then uh, decided to carry our tea in their restaurants. 
since we moved to the new location, we're a bit further from the university. Um, so there's a, a smaller percentage, but still significant, is students. And now we're getting uh, a, a different set of people. We're in West Berkeley, which is uh, a little bit more full of maker-type folks. Um, it's, you know, a little industrial mixed zone neighborhood that we've got that kind of person is coming in now in addition to all of the students and the writers. When I was visiting there, it was, it, it, I noticed that there was not very many people there, but the people that were there knew each other. So is, if you have like any long-term uh, return customers, do you have like 10, 20 year relationships with some hey. people or, or people kind of, yeah, we, we do. You know, it's not like they knew each <laughs> other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have customers, you know, a lot of the customers from the, the original days are still customers. Um, you know, they tend to swing by to pick up whatever their tea is, or they order and we deliver. And some still coming in. Everybody that's worked for us was a customer first as well. So, you know, so people would be customers for a long time, and then Donna would say, you know, why don't you just take a shift? Uh, because sometimes uh, the people that work here come here when they're not working. And so for the people that are, are, are customers here, they, they come and they enjoy it. And, uh, you know, on weekdays, it's uh, less busy. And so the people that are here on weekdays, we have a membership program so that you can pay, uh, I think it's $75 a month. And you can come and have a pot of tea every day. Um, so we have a number of people that do that. Um, and so they're in on the weekdays. Weekends, it gets busy. Um, and on the weekends is when there are people that are maybe first-time visitors or, uh, you know, not not the everydays. Although the everydays do come, but I, I suspect they avoid weekends more. Yeah, so you have this, uh, the, the policy about, like, two-hour limits. So it seems like you do get... Pretty busy yeah. uh, on the weekends. Yeah, and that's definitely. Do you weekends. think that the tea culture in the Bay Area is like a little bit? Do you do you visit other? How often do you visit the sort of other sort of tea cities with like tea with established tea culture similar to to yours? And do you feel like the Bay Area or just sort of your your, your or Berkeley in general is a little bit different? Is it isolated from sort of the bigger trends? Because especially the last five years, we have all this new surge of interest in. And poor, especially young poor, like there's a new generation of tea enthusiasts coming in. Do you feel? Do you find that your your tea scene is uh, is is uh, changed a lot in in the recent years compared to everyone else, or, or are you riding the new wave of interest? Well, it's uh, I, I'm interested that you know to hear you suggest that that's what's happening outside. I don't get out of uh, out of town all that much. Um, to, you know, I haven't seen a lot of what's happening elsewhere. Uh, what I've seen in, you know, in, in our 18 years, um, initially there was Imperial Court was in Chinatown in San Francisco, and then there was us, and we were the only ones that were really doing loose leaf tea. Then for the next, you know, five to ten years, a number of similar types of tea shops started opening up. Um, Samovar in the city and T Ants in Berkeley, um, you know, doing a good job of introducing people to, uh, loose leaf tea. 
and then sort of came malty and Starbucks buying in to tea and the trend sort of moving away from single estate tea, pure tea, to what's the coolest flavor that I can do and how can I mix matcha with chocolate or um, what sort of latte and, and uh, you know, if you look in industry magazines, that's where the growth in tea is. is. It's in tea beverages. Um, and then, you know, more recently, especially with the, the bubble tea, right? So bubble tea is just, uh, these, these are the ones that, uh, you know, the young people and are getting venture funding to open a bubble tea thing. And then there's two and then there's three and then they go to New York and they open one there. And those are fun and some are done really well. And some of them are, you know, snack stands with a different kind of milkshake. So the, the kind of tea shop where it's just about tea and having tea, uh, I'm glad there's that you're seeing more of that. Um, I would hope that there's more and more of that everywhere. I think there's a, there's quite a bit in the Bay Area. I, I suspect that it's rising in the same rate that it would be in, you know, Portland and, uh, you know, San Antonio and, or Austin, you know, New York having this kind of tea. I think, uh, hopefully it continues to grow. Uh, but not so fast that all of the tea gets bought up and prices go up too high. Well, yeah, we don't, we certainly, I mean, you, so we don't want anything like the, the, the bubbles that have, have come and gone. Although I, I wonder how inevitable cycles like that may be. I haven't lived through a, a, a tea bubble bursting yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's going to happen in my lifetime, maybe probably several times, uh, before it's all over. Because it, from, from where I'm sitting, like as somebody who's only been into tea for five years, I, 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 when I hear about a store that's been around since 1998, I think, wow. These are the pioneers, you know, it's, it's people like you and David Hoffman that like 20 years ago really put loosely single origin East Asian tea just in the lexicon of, of people who are interested in, in food and interested in culture. I'm just kind of in awe of the people who struck out so early, especially with the internet. I think part of the, what's changed in the last decade is that there's so many sort of online businesses. It's so easy now to set up a, a website that can do transactions from all over the world and you can go to, go to Kunming and, and buy tea and sell it, uh, it's stateside. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that. Whether that translates into more brick and mortar establishments, I think is, is we'll see what happens, right? Because running, as you know, I'm sure running a brick and mortar operation is expensive, yes. right? Yeah, it, it, it's tough. Um, you know, finding the location is, is the yes. key, uh, if you want to do that. Selling tea is also very competitive. There's a lot of people selling tea. Differentiating it is really hard. Um, branding it is is possible but expensive and doesn't really add value to the tea. Uh, so it's a tough business to get into on any level, um, whether it's you just want to put up a site or whether you want to actually build a, a tea shop. I, I, I hope there are more tea shops. I think that you know, places that they are, uh, you know, they're, they're a definite benefit to the communities that, the, that they operate in, you know. And so this is kind of my calling is, uh, to, to try to help make that happen more. And so I'm, I'm psyched that, 
you know, 20 years later, now there's actually a lot of tea shops. I think that's great. And I hope there's more. Uh, I, I question for you. Um, do you have, do you have like one or maybe several like tea mentors, people, you know, people who sort of in, were your gateway into tea that sort of taught you individuals who sort of set an example for you as far as maybe how your business runs and how you approach tea and who taught you the ins and outs of tea all the, all those years ago, whether it was in the, in the West or when you were in East Asia, was there any, what is there any sort of mentors that you look back fondly on Leah? You know, uh, largely kind of, uh, my wife and I, you know, we, we, there was a guy in Taiwan, um, who had a ceramic studio. Um, and so he made teaware and, uh, and sold tea. And so we, we were, uh, uh, admirers of him and, you know, visited him a few years ago and he kind of, embodied a lifestyle that I admired and I thought huh I you know because he was older and he he was spending his time you know sitting in a shop and have you know engaging with people that stopped by um and that seemed like a good way to spend time to me once we actually opened a shop you know we we, we met Alfred Pete came in uh, a couple times and um he, he told Donna you know the advice we got from him on how to learn tea was to drink different tea every day. Um, drink as much, many different kinds of tea as you can. Um, and so we've been doing that. And that, that's how you develop a palate, right? Is to taste as many different things as you can. Uh, also you had mentioned David Hoffman and, uh, you know, we met him fairly early and, uh, spent some time out at his, uh, hillside compound. He's got, the caves with the Puar and just really admire and inspired by his commitment to a tea-based life. And so, you know, it was various people along the way that uh, were, were doing things in a, in a, in a way that really didn't compromise. Uh, I guess Alfred Pete compromised when he decided that coffee was a much more profitable product to sell than tea. But otherwise, uh, he, he said he was a tea drinker uh, by choice, even though the coffee business was uh, what he became more well known for. Yeah, I did not know that he was a that. Yeah, when I think of Pete's, I think of uh, I think of coffee first. That's interesting. Uh, it, it, we don't have we don't have Pete's in. Uh, I'm from Indiana. I didn't see a Pete's until like two oh, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I came out to the West Coast. Yeah, and this is because he didn't compromise. You know, I think he had done work with the people that went on to do Starbucks and didn't want to sell out. And so his partner moved to Seattle and created Starbucks. And so Alfred Pete's, you know, was really committed to the handcraftedness of, of the product. Um, and so you don't have Pete's in Indiana yet because of that, that idealism for uh, local and handcraftedness. So, so as we kind of round the corner here, um, thanks again so much for, for spending time, spending time with me here today. Uh, what do you, if, if you had in, in the future for far leaves, what would you like to do that you haven't done yet? Is there, is there any sort of goal or, or, or shift or, or anything that you would, any, any plan, any, any new horizon that you would like to be doing or, or something that you've already done, but you'd like to do more at far leaves? What's, what, what would be something that, somebody who has a, a 20 year old tea shop sort of want for the future well so we're I, i'm very interested now we've got the you know our, our shop is 18 and a half years old and 
uh, it's kind of time for for Donna and I for this child to grow up and to live on its own a little bit. So we're working really hard with the staff that we have to get to a point where the shop can run without Donna and I's day-to-day efforts so that because I would like for us to be able to go out and visit some of these other shops that are uh, out there in various places and and to look for new things in new places but but also to get it so that there is a model for how you can have a small business that that runs and you know a, a tea business they they go a number of different ways um, you know as you open a tea shop and you're selling tea and then there's snacks and so one thing you can do is turn into a restaurant you know because just selling tea is hard to make a, enough money to pay the rent and all the people and so adding food is definitely a good way to uh, increase the the revenue that's coming into a business. Uh, Another thing that tea shops tend to do uh, is they go wholesale. And so Mighty Leaf is a great example. Mighty Leaf had a wonderful tea shop in San Francisco before they went wholesale. And it was sad that, you know, they realized that, you know, the retail was not where the money's at. Um, so, you know, Samovar is a restaurant. Um and Mighty Leaf became wholesale. So a lot of tea businesses go either one of those directions. I'm an idealist, and I'm still trying to make it so that a tea shop that doesn't be, doesn't become a restaurant but is really about having tea, trying to figure out how to really make that work so that it can be self-sustaining and go on living without, you know, Donna and I uh, stoking the fires every day. Um, so we're really looking for people that, you know, can step into roles here to – Keep it going, and 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 really, you know, I'm an old guy, so I'm looking for new people who think of, hey, what about this, or what about that, you know. So these are the the things that uh, I'm I'm just super psyched, you know, to that there's people like you who are interested in this, and you know, and and sharing in the commitment to to make tea more of of a. Uh, a ritual that that people can appreciate and enjoy. If you ever get a chance to uh, to not be needed on a sort of a, a day to day basis at the at the shop, you and Donna both. Uh, if you want, if you're, I, I'm in San Diego, and I the, the podcast is kind of my is kind of my hobby. My my job is at uh, is at building us. We have a small tea house called Mad Monk Tea. If you ever want to come down to SoCal, uh, we're we would be so happy to to have you as our guest. Uh, that would be. Super cool to show you what our shop is like and the kind of teas that we source. And you know, it's it's a it's like a four person company right now. And uh, it would be just anyway. If you ever get the yeah, chance, no, you are you're more than more than welcome and invited to come see I would, us. I would love to do that. Yeah, it's right now. It's right by the beach too. So we always oh. like to sort of close the shop for fifteen minutes at sunset and just go out and watch the sunset and come yeah, back in. Perfect. Sounds like <laughs> you guys are doing it right as it goes over the ocean. Yeah, sounds like you're doing it right. Well, Peter, uh, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Uh, so this Peter Christie of Far Leaves is your is your URL farleaves.com far or is it far-leaves? Farleaves.com. Cool. And you're on the west side of Berkeley. Yeah, so I encourage if you if anyone's in the Bay Area, uh, I've been to almost every tea shop in the Bay Area and this one was the only one where I got out my phone and took pictures because I wanted to remember what it looked like for future reference because I liked it so much. So uh, I, I can't I can't give it a, any higher praise than that. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you, uh, Barry. Hopefully we 
see you in the future when I when I'll if I'm if I'm back up there maybe we'll we'll get to meet in person and like I said you're you have a standing invitation to to have tea at Bad Long. Sounds so. great. Looking forward to awesome. uh, coming down for a visit and or seeing you up here. And thanks so much for uh, talking with me today.